This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. From the Commonwealth Club of California, this is Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton, and my guest today is Julian Castro, U.S. Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. People wanting to go solar no longer need a stack of $100 bills in their hand. Companies selling solar rooftops will now install the systems with zero cash down, and some owners owners can start saving money on their electric bills on day one. But stalled incomes are making it hard for first-time buyers to get into the housing market, and clean energy is still considered by many to be a luxury for the comfortable classes. Over the next hour, we will talk with Secretary Castro about how all Americans can participate in a clean energy economy that creates jobs in healthy and resilient communities. We also will talk about the American dream in the era of climate change and what cities can do to build a cleaner form of capitalism. In 2009, Julian Castro was elected mayor of San Antonio at the age of 34, becoming the youngest mayor of a top 50 American city. In 2012, he gained national recognition when he became the first Hispanic to give the keynote address at the Democratic National Convention. Please welcome Julian Castro to the Commonwealth Club. Thank you. Thank you. Secretary Castro, welcome. Thanks for having me. Clean energy, electric cars, solar, that's often thought of for people who are affluent in America. How can all Americans participate in the clean energy economy? That's a great question. First, uh, thank you, Greg, uh, uh, and everyone here at the Commonwealth Club for having me today. It's uh, special to be here on the last for the last program that you're going to have here at this location. I was here two years ago. That's right, uh, with your brother. you recall. Yes, and uh, it's great to be back. Um, you're right that oftentimes uh, when a lot of Americans think about um, energy efficiency, they think about being environmentally responsible, folks tend to think that, well, that's something for people that, that have a lot of resources. Driving an electric car or installing uh, rooftop solar Um, The fact is that the declining cost of solar uh, and the declining cost of being energy efficient in general is making that more and more affordable for middle-class Americans and folks of modest means. Today, I'm in San Francisco uh, because we announced uh, a HUD and State of California pilot project for PACE, which is property-assessed clean energy, uh, to encourage owners of multifamily buildings, basically apartment buildings, uh, to install green retrofits in those apartment buildings uh, because we know that uh, a quarter of Americans live in multifamily buildings and that if we were able to achieve a 20% reduction in energy consumption, that would, that would save $7 billion in energy costs and be the equivalent of getting 7 million cars off the road annually. Um, Those multifamily buildings uh, are not, by and large, luxury apartments. They're Mm -hmm. where middle-class families live, people of modest means live, because these are HUD-assisted 
residential buildings. Uh, it's through that kind of partnership and through cities that are doing weatherization on houses, um, making investments in infrastructure in smart ways, that people of all economic classes are being impacted by this. So it really is a, a new era where everyone can participate uh, in combating climate change. And is this program going to involve taxpayer subsidies? How's it, how is this program going to work and make it affordable? Because a lot of people think that renters are left out of the green economy because they, they can't make their landlord do it. They don't have a particular meter. or The landlord doesn't care. So how's yeah. it going to work? Well, it's a combination of financing. Some of that, the financing actually is uh, private financing paid by these multifamily building owners. The MacArthur Foundation is also investing $10 million in this. So you have a public-private partnership. And generally, these PACE projects are assessed on property tax bills. And so the investment is paid for over time, financed over time, uh, on, on their property tax bills. In addition to that, California is pursuing a pilot project uh, called on-bill repay that is not assessed through your property tax bill, but is actually assessed through your utility payment. Uh, that's how it's fi- financed over time. One of the biggest things in retrofits or, or upgrades that happened in this country in a very long time was the Stimulus Act, the American Recovery sure. Act. Uh, $4 billion went to HUD, $5 billion to Department of Energy. Some of that money was, was criticized for not being spent effectively, efficiently. Uh, weatherization, states couldn't spend the money in the time that was required. So what did, you weren't in federal government then, but what did you <laughs> yeah, learn yeah. from some of the problems yeah. of the Stimulus Act to make sure that the federal government gets it right this time? Um, Well, you know, I was a mayor during that time period, and uh, I think the biggest lesson is just, uh, first of all, that you need very good coordination from the federal uh, through the state down to the local level. You need uh, excellent planning um, because I think sometimes what I saw were there, there were at times challenges with the planning that was not in place, but I think by and large... Um, we can say now with the benefit of hindsight that the, the ARA funds made a huge impact in getting our national economy back up to speed. Uh, and when it comes to uh, just what HUD did, you know, the, there were $13.6 billion that were invested uh, in housing and 1.8 million homes that became greener because of those investments. So this is tangible. It is you know, uh, helping to combat climate change, improving the economy, and also making an impact on the lives of middle-class families and folks of modest means. You mentioned your time during mayor. You did a fair number of things as mayor. Um, mm-hmm. uh, worked on some, pulled some coal plants, pulled out of a nuclear plant, bike sharing. One thing that didn't happen was specific goals for reducing San Antonio. It's the seventh largest city in the country. Didn't realize that until I looked it up last night. Yeah. Uh, but you didn't make specific goals like San Francisco and other cities did. Why not? You're right. Uh, that wasn't something that, that was part of the approach. Uh, you know, I think that... Um, uh, that my hope is that San Antonio will. Uh, it was not accomplished during that time frame, but my hope is that the city will in the future. And what do you plan to do at HUD other than this uh, sort of program for multifamily dwellings? What are your other plans for making um, federal housing more energy efficient and cleaner and greener? Sure. Uh, HUD is doing a lot. Uh, you know, we have a better buildings challenge. The president has challenged multifamily building owners out there uh, to reduce their energy consumption by 20% by 2020, uh, and we have now, I think, something like 81 
uh, owner, actually it's 87 now because we announced six more today, 87 owners of multifamily properties across the nation uh, that constitute 380,000 households, 400 million square feet of property that have signed on to that Better Buildings Challenge, and it's making a significant difference. Uh, you talked about, uh, for instance, uh, in the single-family context, FHA does have a product that allows folks to essentially uh, work in the costs of retrofitting uh, their, their home uh, as a loan product that is insured by FHA that can go to 110% of the value of the property. So uh, there's, there's a multitude of ways that HUD has been involved in um, encouraging energy efficiency. Uh, we also have uh, a goal of 100 megawatts of on-site renewables in federally assisted housing. So this is public and subsidized housing by 2020. And right now we're about halfway there and making good progress. Uh, and then the last thing I would just mention that folks may be uh, familiar with is our National Disaster Resilience Competition. Uh, we're, setting, we're investing a billion dollars in a competition among um, states and cities that had a national disaster declaration between 2011 and 2013 to give us their most creative plans on how they can become more sustainable, resilient communities and be better prepared next time for a Hurricane Sandy or a Hurricane Katrina uh, and be thoughtful about it. And uh, later this year, we'll announce the winners of that. So resilience is a big thing, and, and that's a big part of your portfolio. You know, after a disaster, there's an there's a inclination for communities that want to rebuild they, the way they were before. But the federal government's starting to say, well, you can't exactly build that house on the Jersey Shore the way it was because you know, it's going to get hit again. So yeah. what, how are you balancing restoring communities while also preparing for what the future is going to bring? Well, let me kind of untangle that for a second. I think that the challenge has actually been over time. Historically, the challenge was that there was not enough thought given to if there has been a natural disaster, uh, be it a hurricane, tornado, uh, that, that we have to go in and fund with FEMA money or with community development block grant disaster recovery money from HUD. Generally, the position had been just rebuild it the way that it was before. That's what people um, want. Yeah, that's what they're used to, but there wasn't as much forward thinking about, you know, how can we redo the infrastructure in a way that creates more resilience for the future? So uh, around the two-year anniversary uh, of Hurricane Sandy, for instance, I was on uh, Long Island. I visited New York uh, and also New Jersey uh, and got to see some of the work that they are doing to think about when, when they um, rebuild their water uh, sewage treatment plants, for instance, or rebuild houses that came down because of Hurricane Sandy, how can they use um, CDBG-DR money in a smart way to not just rebuild what they had before, but, but make, the, make it more resilient so that the next time they face that natural disaster, they're able to withstand it? Um, I think one of the lasting legacies of the Obama administration is going to be the work that it has done to spur creativity through this National Disaster Resilience Competition. Uh, and before it, after Hurricane Sandy, something called Rebuild by Design that was really a precursor to this, 
in conjunction with the Rockefeller Foundation um, and uh, Secretary Sean Donovan did, I think, a, just a great job in getting that off the ground. So how is that happening now, Governor Christie, New Jersey? Is that happening? Is New Jersey rebuilding in a way that's going to prepare for the next one, or is it kind of still built on the old shore? No, I think uh, it's fair to say that each of those uh, states that were impacted by Sandy have shown good progress in terms of rebuilding in a smarter way. That's still a work in progress, uh, frankly, but they have made good progress. Scientists say we can expect more severe weather in the future, and yet cities like Miami and others are still a lot of waterfront development happening. Some people concerned, I interviewed former New Jersey Governor Whitman, who said at some point, Uncle Sam can't always be there to bail out these cities and states. So how do you think that's going to play out at some point where something, Sandy, a couple of Sandys, $60 billion federal taxpayers paid to, to recover for that, is there going to be a point where Uncle Sam can't write a big check to the states and say, sorry, you should have been ready for this? Uh, well, our hope is that through the investments that we're making now and the example that these communities that are participating in Rebuild by Design and the National, National Disaster Resilience Competition, the example that they're setting will set best practices that are then adopted by states throughout our country. I don't, I don't believe that there's going to come a time where after a natural disaster, you know, the federal government says you're on your own. I mean, that has not historically been the practice of, of the federal government. However, uh, I do think that we're looking for stronger partnerships from states and from private and nonprofit uh, players on how can we do this in a way that will mean that, that these communities are just able to withstand one of these natural disasters better so that we don't have to spend, we don't have to invest the same level of resources next time. We're not going to walk away once it's happened, but what we want to do is invest now so that we won't have to spend those resources in the future and the quality of life can be better for residents because they're able to withstand it next time. Does that create what's called a moral hazard? If, if a developer thinks, well, I can build in this wetland and yeah, a hurricane might come, but the government's going to bail me out, I won't be liable. Does that create... Uh, sort of incentivize risky behavior? Uh, no, I, 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 don't, I don't believe so. At least it hasn't been my experience as someone who went through local government that, that folks think about it necessarily in that way. You know, usually when folks do their development, they're doing their development, you know, for their own private reason for gain, but I don't think they're thinking in the future people are going to bail me out necessarily. And that hasn't been our focus. Our focus is... Um, ensuring that, uh, that we make the right investments so that uh, communities are more sustainable and they can withstand natural disasters better in the future. Natural disasters happen all sorts of ways. They happen quickly. They can also unfold slowly. Texas is in the year of, uh, fourth year or so of a drought that's among the, the biggest in the last 500 years. Uh, mm. Many scientists would say these are the kinds of things we can expect more in the future. So how is the drought mm. affecting Texas, mm. and are people connecting it to climate change? Greg, why are you picking on Texas? California's in a drought, too. I have it. <laughs> We like to pick on Texas. We're envious of your San Antonio You know, today, I walked up to the podium uh, with Governor Brown, and as I, I was walking up, I said, oh, I'm glad to be here in California. He said, oh, you're glad to be here. You're from Texas, and you're talking about California as a leader, uh, which I was. California is a leader uh, on these issues, and very good. But to answer your question, uh, you're right. I mean, it's not just uh, buildings and infrastructure. It's, it's all of this goes together. 
So for Texas, uh, we, we're having the second worst drought on record since the 1950s. Um, San Antonio was, is the largest American city that relies on uh, an underground aquifer for, as its primary source of water. So in San Antonio, for instance, um, the best way that I can describe that city is that it learned the hard way, and it has now uh, taken on this culture of conservation there. Let me put that in concrete terms. In the mid-1980s, the, gallons, the number of gallons of water used per customer of the San Antonio water system per day, or back there it was a city water board, like it was mm-hmm. not its own entity, was about 202 gallons per day. Today, it's probably around 135 or 140. So if you were to look at like 1985, 1986, 87, in that San Antonio water system, the entire system, they're using about the same amount of water then as they were in 2011, 2012. And it wasn't just conservation. It was also uh, direct water recycling efforts. It was storing aquifer water so that you can use it then you know, when you need it later. Um, you know, we're looking more and more at the water energy nexus because, mm-hmm. as folks know, you know the, the utilities use each other's product more than anybody else. You know, the, the electric utility uses water um, more than anybody else, and the water utility uses electricity oftentimes more than anybody else. So if you can do joint projects and reduce both of those at the same time, that really is the pay dirt in terms of sustainability. And all of that is going on in San Antonio. It's, uh, it's one of the best-kept secrets in terms of effectiveness when it comes to combating the drought. Another area of pay dirt in Texas is fracking. It's a very water-intensive process. Do you have a view on fracking? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think like, like most folks, I've watched out there um, uh, in terms of the concerns about it. I would be lying to you if I said that I don't have... Uh, any concerns and want to ensure that in the long term that it is uh, done in a safe way. Uh, I'm not against it. Uh, I've not come out against it. Um, but I do recognize that, uh, that there needs to be, there needs to continue to be uh, research to ensure that it's done in a safe way. Um, most recently, you know, folks may have seen about three or four weeks ago, uh, there was a series of, of uh, small earthquakes in the, I think it was the Irving area of North Texas. Uh, how does that happen and people not say, well, okay, you know, you've got to try and understand what is going on here. Is that linked to fracking in North Texas? All of those are very legitimate questions, but I do believe, you know, from the, the evidence that I have gone through and read, that it can be done safely. Um, you know, I know people disagree with that. There are people that, that don't believe that it should be done. Uh, I haven't come to that view on it. So you're not for a ban on fracking, but for proper fracking with, with strong government oversight? Yeah, with strong government oversight. Also, I think that some of the legislation in Texas with regard to transparency around the chemicals that are used makes very basic sense to me. Um, uh, I think that the oversight on it, the research on it, has to be neutral and not funded by industry, um, and uh, that makes a difference. So, um, like I said, you know, I believe that, that there is a utility to it, and um, 
that it has a strong economic value, uh, that natural gas is an important component of our energy future, uh, and at the same time, I'm keeping an open mind as research continues to come in. This is Climate One from the Commonwealth Club, and our guest is Julian Castro, Secretary of the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. I'm Greg Dalton. There's been a big change in the energy landscape. $40 oil was up around $100. How has that affected Texas? How has that affected you know, the, the prospects for clean energy when dirty energy is so cheap all of a sudden? Well, uh, for Texas, folks may remember, of course, that Texas went through quite uh, a recession uh, in the 1980s uh, you know, as we saw energy drop precipitously. And the big question lately has been with the huge plummet in uh, the price of oil. Are we going to see that again in Texas? I do think that Texas is going gonna, is gonna, to uh, feel the effect of that. The, I think, fortunately for the state, the economy of Texas has diversified significantly since the 1980s, and so it's not as dependent on uh, the oil and gas economy, but it is going to feel the effect of it. It just probably won't be nearly to the same extent that it was in the 1980s. You're not going to see, I don't believe you're going to see that, that kind of impact because the state has just diversified beyond it um, and it has to continue to diversify. My main critique of Texas uh, is that you know it, a lot of those guys knock California all the time, but what, ta- what California got right historically was that it invested in brain power. You know, it invested in being innovative and educating people through the university system and if you compared the public university system in California to the public university system in Texas, historically, California's was much stronger. And that was really, you know, I think what California did well in the 20th century and what Texas in the 21st century is not getting right in the way that it needs to get right. Because you know, brain power, as I've said many times, and I said last time when I was here, I really believe that that's the currency of success in the 21st century global economy. It's nice to hear a Stanford grad endorse Cal here at California. Um, <laughs> yeah. I should have worn my cardinal red sweater I had on yesterday. Another thing that, one thing you tried to do as mayor of San Antonio is get a California company, company Tesla, to come to San Antonio. Tell us about that and what that would have done to diversify San Antonio and also the, the job prospects of electric cars and moving away from oil. Well, I mean, I'm a fan of Tesla, like I imagine a lot of folks are. I think they put out a good product. Uh, you know, obviously it's uh, cleaner uh, for our environment. Um, that would have represented, and it will, for Reno, Nevada, a great investment. I think of a $5 billion facility with, with several thousand jobs directly created and many more probably over time. So a fantastic environmental impact writ large and a great local economic impact. But they paid a lot per job to get that. They did. They did. Yeah. And and I wouldn't disagree with that. I mean, there is there is a debate about the effectiveness of of economic development incentives. Um, Certainly in Texas, there has been. And in fact, the new governor, Greg Abbott, just announced that he wants to do away with one of the uh, economic development incentive funds, the technology incentive fund Mm. that, that Governor Perry had and that didn't end up actually creating that many jobs or really that much research in the state. Mm-hmm. I actually sat down with Governor Perry when he was out here courting Tesla, drove a Tesla right up to the, uh, the state house yeah. in Sacramento. How do you think, how do you judge uh, Rick Perry's term as governor of Texas? <laughs> um, 
I think that the that that a fair assessment from my obviously my perspective would be that it was just a big missed opportunity that again I believe what that state needs to do is to prepare for the future by investing in brain power and investing in segments of the economy that are growing and it's getting it I've described it as as like a coin two sides of a coin and there's a shiny side uh, the shiny side is what you hear all the time about the number of jobs created in Texas, which is true. I mean, it created a lot of jobs in Texas uh, and they generally have done better than a lot of states. They knock California all the time as being a high-cost, anti-business state uh, and in a state with a lot less regulation and that is more, quote-unquote, business-friendly, there's a lot more investment. But what Governor Perry did not get right uh, is, is investing in what my brother has called the infrastructure of opportunity in strong schools, in strong universities, uh, in um, uh, making sure that people of different walks of life can prosper and be a part of the American dream. Uh, we really didn't, I don't, to my mind, we didn't make much progress in those 15 years of preparing for the 21st century in the long run. A lot of those jobs created were low-wage jobs. Uh, you talk about people participating in the American dream. Uh, immigration was a topic when you, you touched on here last time. What are the prospects for some immigration progress uh, during the, the final years of the Obama administration? Yeah, I'm very proud of, of the president and what he has done on immigration, uh, that, that he's taken this strong step with his executive action to fix what I think all of us, whether wherever you are on that issue, understand is a broken immigration system right now. Uh, and as you all know, we had uh, bipartisan support for legislation in the Senate on immigration. It made it through the Senate, I think with 57 votes, and, or no, 68 votes, and, and then got into the House, and the Speaker John Boehner invoked the Hastert Rule, which basically says that only if a majority of the governing uh, party supports it will it actually get uh, a vote on the House floor, and so they withheld that and never got its vote. In terms of this session, I believe that, uh, that the President has laid out a series of steps that make sense, that hopefully will spur Congress to action. I do think that, 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 that the pressure on, on Republicans is going to get higher as we get closer to 2016 to resolve this issue. Um, because it, I, I think it's going to make a difference in the 2016 election if they don't do anything positive. Uh, so I'm hopeful that something can get done, but I'm also not holding my breath. And a lot of that concern is driven by attracting Latino votes, right? People look at that voting block as they will be pay a price if they don't do something for that voting block. They look at it as Latino votes in 2016. Really, also, Asian Americans are a huge component of that. And, and Asian Americans now are growing, I think, faster at a faster rate. But still if a much smaller it, part of the population. Still a, still a much smaller part. But if you look, I think, four cycles from now or eight cycles from now, you know, the stories that you're reading, I think, about the Latino community are going to be written about the Asian American community in the future in the United States. And that's also a community that, that I believe understands how important it is to resolve this issue of our broken immigration system. And in the 2012 election, you know, y'all have seen the figures. I mean, Hispanics voted at 71 percent for uh, President Obama, and Asian Americans voted at 73 percent for President Obama. And so 
you know, it's, it's not, that issue is not cordoned off to one, one demographic, I think. President Obama ran saying he would end the partisan gridlock in Washington, D.C. Didn't happen. What can change that, the, the partisan gridlock in Washington? Yeah, my brother uh, told me uh, just a snippet, a really interesting story. My brother, Joaquin, uh, we're twins, and uh, he calls me the uglier twin. But uh, <laughs> um, He started uh, Congress in the 2012 session. He said something very fascinating about the very first day that he got there. He said that like, when you go there, all the materials that you have to pick up um, are on separate tables from the beginning, and that in the first like, orientation that they have, like, they have it separately, the Democrats and the Republicans. And he's described it as, as the entire infrastructure of the place is designed for fighting. Like, like you're separated, you know, it doesn't encourage collegiality or getting to know people. Also, the schedule that they're on, you know, my, he, he said that they were in, in session 98 days in 2014. That they were only in session 98 days. Because they're out busy raising money. <laughs> yeah, well, whatever they're doing. Uh, I mean, what it means is they get there, you'll get there on Monday, and then leave on Thursday. So, I mean, you're there, and then you're mostly back home, but but you're not forming those kinds of relationships that I think have been formed more in the past. So uh, to, to, to get to your question, I think it's going to take looking in a deeper way at, at how those relationships are, are fostered and structured in the Congress. I believe that what we've seen is an economic comeback in the United States as well. You know, unemployment rate at 5.6%. The housing market is rebounding. Um, over 11 million new jobs created over 58 months. The president is in a stronger position, I believe, today to get bipartisan support from Congress, and so I'm hopeful that he will. Not so sure they're going to give him much anything this last part of his term, but to, to the part about members of Congress spending a lot of time in their district, it used to be they spent more time in D.C., they would have cocktails together, famous stories about Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan shouting names at each other and then having a scotch. Do you ever knock back a few beers with Republicans in Washington? Or drink <laughs> I don't drink, so oh, okay. I mean, you know. What? Knock back a few iced teas then. I'll yeah, bring yeah. my iced tea. Well, that's one of my pet peeves about the Northeast is that it's impossible to get... Like good iced tea and good barbecue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, and, and, and I think that the president has not gotten nearly enough credit for how active the White House is in inviting members of Congress to all different sorts of meetings and events. And the fact is that oftentimes folks are invited and they decline the invitation to go. And some of them say, well, you know, they, they, they can't be seen uh, at the White House or with the president because they're afraid of what will happen with their base. Uh, but this notion that, that there's no attempt at fostering relationships from the White House, there has been a very strong attempt consistently um, by the president. And uh, for I think for the reasons of, of um, political concern in their home districts, a lot of folks just haven't responded. Our guest today at Climate One of the Commonwealth Club is Julian Castro, Secretary of the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. I'm Greg Dalton. You can join the conversation on Twitter and also listen to a podcast in iTunes. Uh, if not much is going to happen in Washington, a lot of climate people think that cities are where the action is going to be. You've been a mayor. What can cities do as important actors to really drive resilience, 
cut greenhouse gases and kind of really move forward when not a lot is happening nationally or internationally? Yeah, cities can do a lot. Uh, in fact, uh, just recently, uh, there were 16 champions of climate communities that were recognized, and actually San Francisco is one of those. Uh, I think uh, Sonoma County um, was another one that created uh, uh, a district focused on uh, climate change. Uh, San Francisco has set, and I think this is what cities can do, set goals across the board, you know, with their deals with water, uh, renewables, uh, energy efficiency, uh, the, the use of infrastructure uh, in smart ways. Uh, cities can adopt policies that have the effect of making them more resilient and uh, lowering their emissions uh, and, uh, and, I think, uh, preparing for climate change more strongly. One person who's spoken out uh, av- quite vociferously recently on climate change is, is Pope Francis. Uh, your colleague, Gina McCarthy, was recently uh, invoking the, the Vatican. Uh, you're a Roman Catholic. How do you see Pope Francis's stance on, on climate change and, and climate as a moral issue? Well, I'm a fan of this pope. Uh, he, uh, I think he has done a, just a wonderful job of articulating, I know personally, uh, why I'm Catholic. Some of the things that, as I've grown up as a Catholic, I was most attracted to social justice and a concern uh, for people who are poor and basically a concern for everybody. Um, with regard to, to, to uh, climate change, I mean, I don't, I don't see... Uh, I, I don't see a conflict as part of the faith on that issue. Uh, Between the science and the faith, because some people do say that it's blasphemous for humans to think they can change God's creation. We, we can't do that. Only God can. Yeah, I, I, I don't feel that conflict. You know, I don't, I don't see it. And recently we saw that 2014 was the hottest year ever recorded. Uh, and, and I believe it makes sense to... to not just question what's, what's happening here, but how can we do something positive about it? The people who will suffer the most will be poor people, vulnerable communities, vulnerable countries. People in the Pacific Islands, Bangladesh, did very little to contribute to greenhouse gases. It's our lifestyle that's created that. They don't have the resources. There are also poor communities in the U.S. So how do you think about vulnerable poor communities and their ability to sort of adapt to things that they didn't create? Yeah, no, I, I think you're right that, that it, it takes, as we, as we look at this on a, in terms of a global scale, that, that it takes some understanding of where different nations are and the quality of life that exists in different nations. That's why I was encouraged uh, recently to see the forward progress that the president uh, made with China so that you see for the first time that China looks to be taking... Uh, uh, climate change seriously and be willing to do something about it in a reasonable time frame. That gives me hope that, you know, whether it's for China or one of the countries that you mentioned, that we can come together uh, and make a strong global effort to combat climate change. Do you ever have moments of looking at the climate science and have moments of fear? It's like, wow, lump in the stomach, this could be really bad? Yeah, I believe that if you're someone who has confidence in science, and you look at the analysis that's coming, analysis that's coming from very well-respected scientists, um, how, as a human being, can you not think about the future that your, your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren are going to have 
and also think about the responsibility that we have to do something about it now where, while there's more of an opportunity to perhaps improve that future. So sure, uh, that does make me think. You have a one-year-old, a one-month-old son and, yeah. and a daughter who's yeah. four or five. They could very well live into the 22nd century to, to 2100, which is... Now one. you're making me feel... Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's a big number. Yeah, yeah. But that's what a lot of scientists <laughs> talk about. It's not just hypothetical. It's very real. Sure. So how does that inform your, your thoughts about science and climate being a parent? I think as most folks who are parents and grandparents here, I think it's said all the time, it's almost cliche, but it's true. It, it just makes things real for you. It's not just you, and it, it's, makes, it makes your thinking about the future uh, more personal and more substantive for you as a human being, thinking about what world your children and then their children are going to inherit. And that's why, you know, when, for me, when I hear that 2014 was the hottest record, hottest year on record, and you listen to the scientists about climate change, it becomes something that you, you feel compelled to do something about, not just in general, but for the people that you care about the most. So I think it should give, it should give all of us um, more uh, impetus to do something. When you come across people that deny climate change in Texas or anywhere else, how do you engage with them? Yeah, I think making the, the argument. Um, yeah, I'm a lawyer by training. And, uh, and the law, especially litigation, is all about, you know, everybody has an argument. Everybody has their argument. And in some ways, that's what folks who have denied this are doing. You know, it's just an argument. Your argument, my argument... But, but try and point out the overwhelming weight of scientific evidence on it. And, and also, as much as possible, in a respectful way, uh, to try and make it uh, personal to how you feel about the future that your children and your grandchildren are going to inherit and why it means so much to get this issue right um, for the sake of the future. Have you encountered people who say privately, I'm kind of concerned, but I can't say it publicly because I'll pay a political price or it'll hurt my company, that sort of thing? Um, I guess over the years, maybe one or two people. On the, I, you, know, you encounter that, not just on that issue, but different issues <laughs> in public policy. You live in policy. Washington, after all. Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, from time to time you hear that. There, there are things that people in politics and people in business would love to be able to do that they will tell you they can't do for whatever reason. Uh, and and uh, sure, one or two times I've heard that on this issue. You'd call the Department of Housing and Urban Development the Department of Opportunity, you know, getting people into the American dream. The American dream is often thought of as a house with a big lawn, a couple of SUVs in the garage. Is that still attainable and desirable in an era where we have water stress and we need to get off fossil fuels? Does the American dream need to change a little bit? Well, the American dream um, is, I think, of, of home ownership, has been home ownership. Now, you know, through what's happening with responsible private developers, these public-private partnerships, the things I mentioned that we're doing with California, the FHA, and what it's doing, those homes can be more energy-efficient homes. They can be climate-friendlier homes. And so I don't see those two as, as mutually exclusive. Um, I, I think that 
hopefully in, in the years to come, part and parcel of that American dream will be, be a home that is more energy efficient. And um, a good example uh, uh, of a community doing something responsible is Seattle, for instance. They, not too long ago, established a regional affordable housing fund to go and buy up lots of land near uh, their railway system, uh, their metro system, uh, to encourage transit-oriented affordable housing so that people can walk to the, to the uh, metro station. Um, my wife and I and, and our two children now live right next door to the school that our daughter goes I mean, right next door. Uh, our apartment building is right next door to the school that she goes to. And uh, about three weeks ago, Erica and I were having a conversation about how much money we're not spending on gas and you know, how much we're not using the, the car that we took from San Antonio to D.C. that is there um, because uh, you know, of, of um, the fact that we live right next to the school. So it's still, I think, at its base, the same American dream, but we can be smarter about the impacts on our climate when we achieve the American dream. One other uh, housing question I want to ask you, and we're going to go in a minute to audience questions. Uh, in 1968, Congress passed the Fair Housing Act, as many American cities were in flames after riots uh, after in the wake of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's assassination. The, the law prohibits discrimination in housing based on race. There's now a court case before the U.S. Supreme Court from Texas challenging that law. What's at stake? What's at stake, essentially, is uh, whether... Uh, disparate impact, um, basically for folks that, that I'm, I'm sure many of y'all know, uh, disparate impact uh, refers to being able to find discrimination, um, not just where you can prove that there was intentional discrimination, but where essentially if you analyze um, the practices of a landlord uh, or in other contexts in housing, that you can show statistically that Minorities have been negatively, significantly negatively impacted. There's been a disparate impact that, the, that, that actions have on minority communities, and the overall effect it would be the same as intentional discrimination uh, against those folks. The question in front of the Supreme Court uh, is whether, uh, under the Fair Housing Act, uh, someone can be liable for... Um, for discrimination, if it can only be shown through disparate impact analysis, or do you actually have to show that they intended to discriminate against somebody? If the standard becomes that that you have to show that they actually intended it in every instance, that means that that essentially there are going to be a lot of policies out there and practices that have the effect of keeping people out, but you can't actually go back and and show that. Uh, and it's going to make it a lot harder, essentially, for, uh, for our department to enforce uh, fair housing and ensure that we have a level playing field for all Americans, no matter... And it's not just by race. It's also if you have a disability. Um, one of the, the, the cases that we uh, did last year was a string of discrimination cases against uh, women who are pregnant. So they walk into, into a... Uh, bank to try and get a loan um, to buy a home and and they're essentially told no because that lender doesn't think they're going to go back to work after their pregnancy. So it reaches a lot of people in different circumstances and uh, we're 
you're right to identify that as a case that we're watching very closely as the Supreme Court uh, just heard it and comes out with its opinion later in the year. We're talking at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club with U.S. Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Julian Castro. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's go to our first audience question. Hi, thank you. Um, thank you for coming today. About 20 years ago, some years ago, the Congress had the Federal Insurance Administration under FEMA impose um, flood insurance requirements on anyone who got federal assistance from FEMA or SBA or any place um, for flooded property. They were to maintain that flood insurance on the property forever or they'd never get federal disaster assistance again. Well, with the extreme weather coming, causing more floods and stuff, what is HUD doing to help elevate or relocate the people that are in these floodplains? Well, uh, thank you very much for the question. Um, uh, two things. First, uh, a, a major part of the investment that HUD has made, let's just take the last 10 years, in the instances, for instance, of Hurricane Katrina and, her, and Superstorm Sandy, have been uh, to uh, help folks elevate their homes. Um, folks who have been impacted by these storms so that they will be more resilient to the next one. Uh, secondly, there is the, the, the possibility that funding that's very flexible, like CDBG funding, can go in communities to that kind of work. Um, the, the, the fact is that oftentimes um, when we're addressing these issues, uh, it's after a disaster has happened. And that's the, the, the new approach that we're taking with this National Disaster Resilience Competition is to challenge communities out there to be creative and come up with plans and execute them to, to make communities more resilient beforehand. Um, a lot of that, that investment is with general infrastructure, but you know, there are places that are helping folks elevate their homes as part of these uh, recovery efforts and then preventative efforts. We might also mention that Congress tried to uh, reform that flood insurance program and then, and then, they, then they clawed it back. Next question. I'm Tyrone Roderick Williams with the Sacramento Housing and Redevelopment Agency. My question is related to the new uh, initiative that you just announced related to yeah. energy efficiency and public housing. As we uh, struggle and look at opportunities for capital improvements on older um, developments, could you just share a little about the resources that would be made available to housing authorities to retrofit existing buildings, particularly those that are, tend to be older properties? Yeah, uh, one, I'll give you an example of something that we're very excited about, um, and we, we have thought about uh, how do we include energy efficiency as part of this. Uh, it, which you're probably familiar with, which is a rental assistance demonstration or RAD uh, initiative. So uh, uh, every year we lose about 10,000 public housing units uh, to disrepair. And the, the challenge is that the investment in resources in public housing these days is just not what it used to be. You know, Congress does not appropriate the amount of resources that it takes uh, to keep public housing up to speed, and so much so that we have a $26 billion backlog in capital investment needs in public housing. So a very creative way to um, 
speed up investment and, and we're looking at how we can do that in an energy efficient way as well, encourage energy efficient retrofits, is uh, to partner with the private sector so you know, that they can finance uh, improvements to public housing, get a return on the investment, but fundamentally still it remains a public asset um, for the future. Uh, and as they do that, the question is, how can we do it in a way that is just not building back up to what it was before, but in a greener, smarter way? Uh, that's one example of, of uh, how we're trying to approach it. We have time for a couple more questions. The secretary needs to go. Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Uh, good afternoon, Secretary Castro. My name is Mario Lopez. I had the privilege of meeting you at the White House last fall as an intern and wanted to thank you for your words. As a big city mayor from San Antonio, you were able to engage uh, various, ta- various communities. Uh, within the Latino community, what would you say is the best way to engage folks uh, to work more on climate change? Sometimes I feel like we're not seen as much as a, as a community that's at the forefront of climate change. Thank you, Mr. Yeah, Secretary. Thank you for the question. I agree with you. I think that, um, that in the Latino community, this has not been an issue that folks gravitate toward you know, in the same way as quickly. And so, like other issues, I think that there's a lot of time that needs to be spent at a grassroots level um, making folks, helping to educate folks and making folks aware of why it's so important. And uh, and the thing is, as you know, that oftentimes, uh, whether it's Latinos or African Americans or, or uh, poor whites or people of modest means, it's these folks who are most impacted um, by... Uh, what we're talking about today. And there's a whole field of environmental justice and ensuring that when local decisions are made, they take into account communities that have traditionally been hurt by their policies. So to answer your question, I would just say it's like anything else. I think nonprofits that are doing work out there in communities trying to reach out to the Latino community, um, it's a very family-based you know, uh, culture, and so utilizing... That approach, I think, always helps. Um, but it's a great question that you raise because I, I think you're right about the connection of the community to this issue. Climate One did a whole program on green Latinos. You can listen to the podcast on iTunes. And one of the, the comments from a Latino leader was health. Frame it as a health issue. Polar bears and glaciers that are far away don't resonate with people, but health does often for people who are living near pollutants and communities yeah. that are affected by, by yeah. fossil fuels. Let's go to our next audience question for Secretary Castro. Uh, yes. Hello. My name is Royce McLemore, and I am the vice president of the Golden Gate Village Resident Council Public Housing Complex Family in Marin County. Our council has developed a plan of historic preservation. We live in Frank Lloyd Wright, Aaron Green buildings. So we are moving for historic preservation, uh, revitalization, and the retrofitting that you've been talking about today. My question to you is, what can we as a group of a resident council, duly elected resident council, how can we look to HUD to help us work with us with our local housing authority to move forward with our plan. Yeah, thank, first of all, uh, you know, my kudos to you for all the great work that it sounds like y'all are doing uh, mm-hmm. on this issue. And um, one of the things that I'm excited to do is to uh, re-energize the work that we do with resident councils in the United States. I met with uh, 
uh, I guess, the main group that represents the resident councils uh, met with their leadership about three months ago, and I'm looking forward to speaking with them again. Uh, as we work with housing authorities on these issues, whether it's rental assistance demonstration or other programs in local communities, uh, we would love to think about how we can, how we can loop in <coughs> resident councils um, so that we ensure that we get the best ideas, a panoply of ideas, uh, and also that we do this in a way that is sensitive to the concerns of residents, of the tenants, and we don't overlook the fact that we're impacting their quality of life as, as retrofits happen, you know, as, as sometimes people have to move because of reconstruction and renovation. Um, so that's a very good point, and um, you know, we're noting that that's a point to bring up when we meet with the Resident Council Association next time. We are out of time with apologies to the people. We're getting the, the signal that the secretary needs to go with apologies to the people in line. One last really quick question. Mark McKinnon is, was an advisor to George W. Bush. Uh, he told the New York Times in 2010, quote, Julian Castro has a very good chance of becoming the first Hispanic president of the United States. Have you heard that quote before? <laughs> I... I've heard the quote before, and that is such a flattering quote, Greg. I thank Mark McKinnon for the quote. But uh, that, uh, I seriously doubt that that's going to be the case. So uh, it's very flattering, though. And our thanks to Secretary Castro for being here today. I'm Greg Dalton from Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Thank you, Secretary, for coming and joining us today at the Commonwealth Club. Thank you. This is Climate One from the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. We turn now to another Texan on the national political stage, former Governor Rick Perry. We heard Julian Castro mention Governor Perry's record. Last year, when Governor Perry was still in office, I sat down with him to talk about energy, subsidies, and the role of government. Here's Rick Perry on stage at the Commonwealth Club. One question from the audience is, how can the Republican Party ever hope to appeal to intelligent people when accepted science such as evolution and climate change are rejected by the leaders of yeah, the party. Yeah. Here, here's the... <laughs> I think, you know, I, there are really two questions out there. One is, do, you know, is, is the climate changing? If the climate's changing, why is it changing? And if man's engagement is the reason it's occurring, then we need to have the solutions to that. If it's not, then everything's going to be fine. But if it is, we need to be able to have the answers to that. And my great concern is that policies that are put in place in Washington, D.C., that can strangle the economy of this country jeopardize our ability to innovate. And I think that's the bigger question, not fighting amongst our, our, ourselves or trying to, uh, to, to push people off into corners, but to recognize that America and America's innovation, both the private sector working with the public sector and coming up with the answers to these great challenges that we have relative to uh, the environment. That's our role, and we cannot do it if we strangle our economy, if we put our economy in jeopardy. Doing nothing on climate also 
can hurt business. Insurance companies are very concerned about droughts, crop losses, severe weather storms. There's many more billion-dollar mm-hmm. losses. Uh, in fact, there's something called uh, the Climate Declaration. This is General Motors, Microsoft, Intel, Unilever, Starbucks, Disney have called for a coordinated effort to combat climate change, in part because of the opportunity, in part because it's hurting business today. So what's their solution? I mean, they didn't agree. They, those companies didn't okay. agree. They just so said listen, something don't, should be done. Please don't stand on the sideline and tell me you need to do this and don't have a, a solution. We have historically addressed the big issues that face this country, excuse me, have faced this world. America has been where these answers come from. We are driven by a free market capitalistic system that has a profit motive from time to time in it. And I will suggest to you that is what we must maintain, we must preserve, we must protect that if we're going to find the solutions to these issues. And we have always been about coming up with innovation, selling that innovation to other places in the world, or trading that innovation, or um, showing the wisdom of using that innovation somewhere else in the world. And that's what we need to be focused on. Another question for the audience for Texas Governor Rick Perry. Are you in favor of the elimination of energy subsidies? I am a fan of subsidies. I, I, think, I, I think there is a role for subsidies to be played And uh, one of the reasons that we have been successful in Texas over the last 14 years of luring businesses to the state is because we've been in competition with other states, and there's been subsidies that we put on the table. We said, if you will come, you will create this many jobs, they meet this minimum salary structure, then we will subsidize your company this much. And, you know, I've got friends who think that's not appropriate. Uh, I do. That is... That is the way the business world works. And I think that more government functions along the lines of how the business world works, uh, it's probably going to be more efficient. So we put subsidies into place to, to bring the wind energy uh, into the state of Texas. But from the standpoint of you know, a, a subsidization for uh, oil and gas drilling, I think there is a role for that to play. I mean, if, if we are to become energy independent... And I think that's a good thing. I think it's good for North America to be energy independent. Our thanks to Governor Rick Perry for our conversation about America becoming energy dependent and many other social issues today. I'm Greg Dalton, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, the place we're in it now, is adjourned. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Our producer is Jane Ann Chan. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineer is Andre Hurd and editor is Annie Chelsea. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future. 